Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And we have a gentleman on the show today. And I could say he's a legend. A lot of he might not want to hear that, but he's legendary. And uh, he has so much going on. I was just talking to his wife. And he is, he's 81. And he's, he's writing a book. He was doing a screening of a documentary. And he recently, uh, a month and a half ago, they remastered the 50th anniversary of his album, Song for Julie, which my good friend Steve McGrew, the very funny comics, one of his favorite songs is Morning Sun. And my guest is Jesse Colin Young. How you doing, Jesse? I'm doing good today. I just had a little walk. Boy, that uh, writing the book is like, you, my watch goes off every hour and says, you got to stand up. <laughs> yeah. What, what made you decide to, to start writing the book? You know, I started before COVID. And it, you know, and and then the first day of stay at home at COVID, instead of going to work on the book, I I said, well, we're not going to dinner, Con. What are we going to do? She said, um, this is kind of weird, so why don't you go get your guitar and play Sugar Babe? I'll take a phone video. We'll stick it up on Facebook. I bet you a lot of people, you know, are feeling weird <laughs> today. So, <clears throat> and then I got into that and... Uh, I got into learning to play all my music solo, most of which I'd written when I was in bands and never played solo. Uh, I just started out that way, you know, uh, half a century ago. And I thought, hmm, this is cool. Uh, I have a lot, I had a lot to learn. So we did that for a few months. And uh, then my manager said, wow. You're doing good with these people are responding to them. why don't you just make a solo album so i got totally distracted by the solo album and uh and the book just kind of laid there waiting once in a while i would say hey jess i'm over here <laughs> <laughs> and um <clears throat> so we went on a tour last summer with my daughter jazzy who has put out a couple beautiful eps and has now started to work on her first length album jazzy young and uh beautiful voice wonderful writer and yeah just like my mom she is the youngest of my children and i've been waiting i was waiting for a child who would bring my mother's voice forward <laughs> i almost ran out of time and then there she came so it's wonderful but just looking back stuff and then jumping into the it's like i i have coffee with my my beautiful little uh pooch and my wife in the morning and then all of a sudden i'm in <clears throat> 1967 and everyone's taking acid and so and i'm back I'm like in the, the current moment where i'm eating uh, a vegetarian meal and it's you know hopping around how how far are you into the book right now well, I'm still, where am I? I'm in young, uh, I made my way because the 50th of Julie was coming. Um, that was the album that I disbanded the Youngbloods to make. Um, and that was, I, I don't know whether it was in 72 or 73. Um, it obviously came out in, if it's 50th, it obviously came out in 73 or 4. <clears throat> I don't know. We figured the math, but 
Um, and I came back from a little tour. I made a, an acoustic album for Warner Brothers. Um, Youngbloods had their own label on Warner Brothers called Raccoon Records, and uh, which they were so glad to have us after RCA, um, after we made three records for RCA, that they gave us our own label and let us record ourselves and or friends. I ended up recording <clears throat> wonderful singer-songwriter Michael Hurley in his living room. And um, and then I started on Song for Julie. And I realized after touring with my brother-in-law and my new drummer and stuff that I couldn't, I just couldn't go back to the Youngbloods. It was, we had been, you know, running out of inspiration gradually. And then we had a lot of fun doing a couple records of 50 songs that we grew up on. But by the end of that, <clears throat> I was really, I was ready for something new. And so I went to work on Song for Julie. And I thought, you know, I've got enough money in the bank. I can make this record here in my own studio the first time. Well, it'll be the second time. The first time with full equipment before that album I made, we were just plugging microphones into this big eight-track uh, machine, but you could only do it with one mic, you know, in each track. I didn't have a board, so I mixed it somewhere else. So this was a first for me. I'm learning. I got a new band, um, and having a reed man, having a sax player, I think had really been a... You know, so many of the songs I grew up with in the 50s, Little Richard tunes and stuff, and there were hits, always had a sax solo. And then when I heard, um, when I heard Stan Getz play with Astrid Gilberto on the, <clears throat> the Girl From Ipanema album, I said, I want a sax player. <laughs> of course, I'm 20 years old. That would, would be my second voice like that. And Jim Rothermel came to me, and my, my <clears throat> buddies in the in the new rhythm section said, "Jesse, you you got to invite this guy up to play with us once. Once is all it's going to take." And, and that's what happened. So then all of a sudden, I, the band was there, the studio was there. Each day, I was a little better at using it. I was doing my own engineering, and um, kind of learning as I went. The songs were coming. My son was born. Morning Sun is a uh, Cheyenne. My oldest was born uh, that year. So, God, the blessings were <clears throat> just coming. I how the new house. How were you? How were you writing back then? What What was your writing process back then? Because you said you came from a band and now you're going solo. Even though you're going to have a backward, what was your writing process? It was just because you had so much good going on in your life that it just flew. It just came out of you. <laughs> My writing process was always solo, except for an album I made, The Perfect Stranger, where I pur purposely wrote tunes with Michael McDonald and Wendy Waldman and uh, and uh, Daniel Keefe, and just to have done it once. Um, so Morning Sun, uh, you know, probably just high. I've got this little munchkin just came along, 
right after the new house and uh, Julie was four and then Cheyenne came and and I think I needed to I needed to connect with the earth again I was born in New York City in in the cement and uh, but they sent me to camp in the Adirondacks when I was eight or nine and I fell in love with the woods pine woods especially and I I carried that dream until we moved to California Youngbloods um, 1967 and you know we had visited the drummer's brother out in old Lima which is this tiny little town kind of a it's actually just a, a, a one stop sign town out of, by the on the coast near Point Reyes in Inverness and We just, we said, why would, why would we move to another city? We can move out here, you know, and be an hour and a quarter away from the city. And, I mean, we got little kids. Why move to the city? So that was my chance. Although I didn't have the money then to build a house. It took, the, it took a few years and a little good luck. Now, and, uh, now saw for Julie, mm -hmm. 50 years old. Still, yeah. still, people, I saw you on your Facebook. You're selling autographed copies of it. You have a bunch of great merch to go with it. What made you decide to, re to remaster it? And how does one remaster an album? Are you involved with it, or is it a heavy produced way? Or what made you, after all these years, because it's still a classic album. But now, I guess, because the way people don't all listen to vinyl anymore. But what made you decide to remaster it? Just because it was 50 years old? Or how did that come about? Yeah, we... I want to take a look at it and and with uh, my engineer Sean Guess with all his new equipment I thought well let's listen to it I made it my first full record that I made so there's a lot of Shure microphones on there like the ones we used on stage Shure 57s and 56s because those I was kind of borrowing burning <clears throat> borrowing them from the Youngblood stash when we would come home because we brought our own PA, PA with us in most gigs. So so they're, they're good mics, but they're really made for stage and they're made to control feedback. They're not made for super high fidelity, either up top or down low. So when we listened to the record, it had a little... It had a little bit of a mid-rangey sound to it because I used so many of those mics because they were all I had. I mean, I was going along and buying things as the money came in. <laughs> the money turned into a microphone or a, or a compressor or a, um, a new reverb unit. Um, yeah, so we felt it was a little mid-rangey, so we lifted it in in a wonderful way. You know, we so the the curve was kind of like this, because the very bottom and the very top were kind of missing, um, because so many mics, so many of the Shure fifty sevens and fifty eights. So we we lifted the high end and the very low end up and kind of flattened out that natural curve from using those mics, and so it was not a a monster 
and I certainly didn't go back to the I've always loved those mixes I remember Danny O'Keefe and he made this wonderful album called Breezy Stories did you ever get to hear that? no wow Arif Martin produced it gorgeous songs I said Danny this album is so beautiful he said yeah but yours he says song for Julie no matter where I play it I mean, if I play it on a cassette player, it sounds good. If I play it on my hi-fi, it sounds good. In my car, uh, I'm sure I can take it at a pool hall and it would sound good on whatever they... So, <clears throat> you know, I got lucky. I mean, it's not perfect, but it the mixes really ring true to me. So I didn't even dream of going back and trying to remix it. How does it how does it make you feel as an artist that something fifty years later something you created and you you can tell you you had a love for this this is your you said your first like solo like you created it how does it make you feel as an artist when you go wow fifty years and people still they they're gonna buy this I mean how does that make you feel as someone who created it is it is it a great feeling or do you sit there and go well I love it but I could have tweaked this. Because anyone who's artistic, we always get, we get a little thrown off at times. Yeah. You know, when you mix your own records and you produce them yourself, by the time you get done with them, boy, you're done. I mean, you've heard everything a hundred times. And, of course, you have the chance. I mean, the point of having your own studio for me was, well, it's not quite right, damn it. So... We could either record it over or we can or we could do the drums over or whatever we need to do we could try and do because you know we were not paying three or four hundred dollars an hour and we um, we had the time i had the time to um, do my best and i'm glad people still still love it and uh, hopefully I mean, all of a sudden, Morning Sun has two million um, streams. Just reintroducing it, kind of, and that was the first. We brought that uh, album, uh, we brought that song out first as the, because it was the first single they released. Um, so there's obviously some new interest in it. I mean... You don't make records just to put them in the closet. You want people to hear them. And um, so I'm hoping that this this commemoration of it brings more people into the enjoyment of that record because there's a lot of that was that brand new, brand new kids, brand new band. Brand new, everybody was so excited to make that record. There's a lot of that beautiful brand new this and that energy, not stuff, but energy. Um, I don't think the guys who came into the band and became that band that was with me for the next eight years, um, they had never been through an outfit like this where we actually had our own studio. We come off the road, we take a week off and then we go right back into the studio. And I, a couple of them lived down the road um, other guys, you know, live a little further away, but not much. 
Um, it was a wonderful family, and we went right from one record to the next, uh, and, a, and a great time, or a creative time. I want to ask you about the Young Bloods. When the song hmm. get when the song Get Together comes out, where did that come from? Where you wrote it? And then it became such a, a somewhat you could call an anthem for a time. Where, when you sat down, where did that all come from? And and did you think? I know writers never know what's going to happen. That it would become such a poignant song of that era. Well, actually, I did not write it. And I think I fell in love with it one night at the Cafe Gogo. We were playing there as an opening band for whoever was headlining. And we did it very cheaply because we could have the stage all day to rehearse on. I had just become the bass player maybe two months before that because we couldn't find one. And we had three guitar players. And I saw McCartney <clears throat> saying, he's doing it. It can be done, so I'm going to do it. We can't find a bass player. I'm <clears throat> Here I go. Um, so I was hoping when I went down that Sunday into the go-go, I thought it was going to be dark. And I would say, it's dark. I'd call the band. We'd rehearse. But it was not dark. I said, oh, it's an open mic. And normally I would have turned around and gone back to my house and worked on my bass playing. But for some reason... I would call it fate. Um, get together and I were fated to meet that day. And I walked down the stairs, second flight, and through the beaded curtain, and Buzzy Lenhardt, a singer-songwriter from Cleveland, who was in the village at that time, he was on stage singing Get Together. And for those three or four minutes that I listened, um, I really went into kind of an altered state because I could tell my life was going to change dramatically and that this song was the key to my future and that I had just walked into it. Um, so I ran up to Buzzy when he came off stage, got the lyrics, went home, Worked on it on the guitar, worked on it on the bass, went back and forth, took it in to the band the next day. I fell, I fell deeply in love with that song. And, you know, I could talk about it because I didn't write it. I mean, I can say these are some of the, these are some of the most poignant lyrics in the world without feeling like a, I'm blowing my own horn because <laughs> I, I discovered it like everyone else and it blew me away. Now, I had heard a story and I want to hear it from you because I grew up, you know, watching The Tonight Show. And when well, my parents would let me stay up because I love the comedians, I ended up having a career as a comic, but I remember seeing them and I was enthralled. But now you guys refused to play The Tonight Show, right? Well, we, yeah, we, we walked off. Right. So tell me what happened. Yeah, I was just writing about it today. Because um, Johnny lied about it when he came on the air. And I'll, 
so we got the call. They must have had a they must have had a cancellation because they called us in California and it's taped in New York and they said, can you, you know, it must have been Monday and they, can you come Thursday and play the show? So we have, we happen to be open and our manager said, well, they're out there promoting uh, Elephant Mountain, which is their new album on RCA. As long as they can play Sunlight, um, then they'll play Get Together. And they said, whoever it was said, that will be fine. So we bought tickets, we flew to New York. Um, we just had a, a verbal agreement because there was no time in those, I mean, there was no internet. No. Um, this was 69. So we got there, we had a sound check. It was a little difficult there. Um, and of course, in TV stations, they do, they don't run their monitors as loud as they do, you know, for live stuff. So that was a little bit hard. We were so used to playing live, the monitors were kind of underpowered. But we worked our way through that and um, played through sunlight and then get together. And um, then we came off the stage, and whoever it was, obviously he wasn't the stage manager. He was probably the production manager or the, I don't know what they call these guys. I, um, but he was in charge, and he said, uh, we won't have time for the other song. We'll just have time for Get Together. So our manager said, well, we have a agreement. I talked to Harry or Louis or whoever it was that he talked to on the phone and told them the deal was they play a song from their new album, they play Get Together. And uh, he said, not going to happen. So we kind of looked at each other and we thought about it. We went in the dressing room, talked about it. It was just, it was one of those, one of those things that reveals um, the way the business end felt about treating musicians, where they were really, um, um, it's kind of a means to an end, and, and should be the profits should be shared with <laughs> kind of like today which is even worse um the streaming the, what little money there is in it for the for the musicians i mean unless they get gazillions of streams it's so we um we said we gave them our word um we wanted to be treated like the businessmen that we were, we were good for our word. You know, we said we'd come. They didn't send us any money. We came. We spent, you know, whatever thousands of dollars it took to get us there and uh, our stuff. And we showed up ready to play, did the sound check. In other words, we uh, and we're ready to do the show. But we were not ready to be lied to or 
were not ready to renegotiate the deal. Um, we'd come a long way and kind of, you know, I mean, in some ways, it was like we were doing them a favor by jumping out of, we just breathed our lives and said, yeah, it's a great opportunity. Thanks, we're coming. Um, but it took a lot of musicians all over this. You know, I look at Taylor Swift and I see hundreds of us from the 60s on, thousands of us probably working to demand respect and when no respect was there to find a way around instead of having to work for people who had no respect for you finding ways to work around that as she has so brilliantly and just cut them out so uh we certainly couldn't do anything about that but we could say no we could say we gave you our word, and you gave us yours. And uh, we expect we have lived up to ours. We expect you to live up to yours. So Johnny never even, you know, he never. He was probably on his way to the studio when this all went down. But <clears throat> my mother was watching that night. I said to him in the book today, Johnny, you lied to my mother. You don't get away with that. So I said, here's the story, folks. <laughs> what did he say? And, what, what did he say why you guys didn't show up? Did he have an excuse or, or what happened? Huh? What did Johnny oh, say? He said, he said uh, well, they came in. Those young bloods came in. They, they thought our set was a little corny and they didn't like the monitors. So since they were only in show business for two minutes, we wiped their noses and sent them home. And I, as I said in the book, you don't get to lie to my mother. You know, you did it once. And that really, I can't imagine she waited through the whole show. And then she hears this about her son. So now I, anyway, wanna... I said, so, I said, so disappointing from a man with so much talent. You didn't need to step into those lies and defend, you know, because you weren't even there. Why would you badmouth us without knowing what went on or being there and it just did it because he could and now, uh that's abusing his very great power it is now, now i want to ask you what made you pick up the guitar i know what because you know what what age did you start because i see behind you you have all these nice guitars but what made you pick up the guitar um well i tried drums i never could get a hold of a drum set and that's probably um, but I practiced a lot with a practice pad when I was 14 or 15. And then I played the piano when I was a kid, maybe from eight to 11 or something like that. But it was really boring stuff. And as soon as rock and roll came on the radio, for me, I was 10. Alan Freed came on the radio in New York. And, um, and then I discovered Symphony Sid down at the other end of the dial. And I had these two guys, and of course, all the other jocks on those shows. And uh, I found out I'm 10 years old. I got a radio on my headboard of my bed. And if I turn it down far enough, I 
can leave it on all night. My parents can't even hear it. So I think for the first four years that Freed was on the air, my radio was on all night. That stuff, <laughs> whether I was awake or asleep, I was absorbing all the beautiful rhythm and blues and doo-wop and stuff that was coming out of my radio. And uh, So when they offered me a chance to play the guitar, I went away to prep school. Um, we moved from New York to Pennsylvania, and the school was not as advanced. Um, the high school, so my, and my dad saw that I was losing interest, and so um, he got he got his brother to help him get me into a very uh, a very fine school, Phillips Andover in, uh, and uh, they offered the guitar classical guitar, supposedly. And I thought, oh yeah, this is it. And of course, when I took it back to the dorm, I was not doing my homework. <laughs> I was listening to the Everly Brothers and, and Richie Valens and um, everything that was coming off and trying to figure out what key is that and what chord is that and what I kind of get a chord book. And yeah, from then it was just, it was a hot love affair. I mean, it still is. Now, I saw you had a screening and some Q&A on High on a Ridge Type. It's a documentary. Tell me about that. Tell me about that project. This is a mystery movie. It was, it was filmed by a man named Hiro Narita, who went on to become a famous um, Hollywood videographer. Um you ever see that movie Never Cry Wolf? He got tons of awards for that one. I mean, he has 40 or 50 movies on his, over his lifetime. And he's my exact age, born in the same year. I have never seen him since, except we got there and Connie had located him and called him up, found out he was living in Marin. Well, in Sonoma, where we were almost where we were staying. So a publicist had said, you know, this is really, this is really kind of a good movie. This is well done. Who is this guy? I, I don't know. He was just some guy. I thought he was wonderful to work with because, or I wouldn't have let him in my house. I don't even know how he got into my house. I mean, not that I had security guys, but we, neither of us remembered. I said, Hero, how did, who brought you to, who started the movie? Here we are. 50 years later, we're about to see the movie for the first time together in uh, at the Art Center on Haight Street. Um, this is like two weeks ago. And he said, uh, you know, a man who turned out to be a schizophrenic person, uh, impersonator, came into my office, said he was a movie producer, and said he wanted to do a movie about you. And... He hired me for that, and he, you know, was paying me. And then somehow one of my friends made some calls about him and found out 
located his mother and found out that he was using his mother's money <laughs> and that he was not a movie producer. But the movie had started, Hero had started coming to my house and I, so here's a guy who's been everywhere in my house except the bathroom, except, I mean, photographed everything. So kind of intimately and I, have no idea. I don't. Nobody brought him in and said, "This is Hero, and we we're going to make a movie about you." It just happened, and he has that kind of. Have you ever worked with a videographer or a photographer who knows how to kind of just like disappear, or, or you're you know you're. Um, you know you're conscious of them, and it's make making you sub self-conscious right and then all of a sudden that's not happening anymore hero somehow came into our house and i said hero who, who directed this movie he said you did they told me just do do whatever jesse you know whatever he wants to do do that um unless it's illegal um and i said well, yeah, but I don't remember that much. I think you directed it <laughs> with the camera. Well, what's so, it about? What's the movie about? It is about that time um, of the beginning of Song for Julie. And the the members in the band are kind of changing as the movie goes on because I haven't quite, I've got two, first I've got two guys that become part of that band and then two other guys. Then, by the, by the end of it, the band's together, and we're all there. And Jim has joined us, the Reed Man. Um, in the beginning, he wasn't there. So that time, I spent probably nine months making Song for Julie. I spent my own money on it. I didn't want to sign with a record company until I had made a record with this new sound and... I wanted a record company that was really into it. So I wanted to make it first and then be able to take it to him and say, here's my work. Would you like to sign me for five records? Or First guy I took it to was David Geffen, and David did not want to sign me, I think. He said, there's no hits on here, Jesse. Um, I said, hmm. And you use cheap echo. <laughs> and I said, David, that, that was all I could afford. I mean, I put this <laughs> thing together um, piece by piece. Um, Warner Brothers loved it, and I ended up with them. But I had already worked with them, with, uh, with the Youngbloods, with Raccoon. So I felt comfortable there. But I wanted to see what other people thought about it. So, But Warner Brothers... They were just a hundred percent behind me. You want to produce yourself, record yourself, engineer your own record? What are you nuts? <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Here's some money. Go do it. So the movie okay. follows all that. Uh huh. So the movie's got the Cheyenne, the little, the little one-year-old Cheyenne, four and five-year-old, four, four-year-old Julie. My wife and I, 
and all the different guys in the band. And we're really, it's in between the house. Um, I mean, we're waking up or having coffee, and then all of a sudden we're in the studio, which is exactly where, I mean, it was, you know, it was 50 feet from my house. This is what I wanted. This was my dream, to be able to just wake up and, and go work on music, um, you know, and listen to the takes from the night before and call up and order a microphone and uh, get some information that I didn't have. Yeah, so it just covers that period and, and ends up at some wonderful with T-Bone Shuffle and some wild... Uh, the wild, a field of hippies dancing, but a small field, but just going crazy and having fun. It's beautiful. Now, but there's, but the the songs, almost all the songs from the Song for Julie album are in there, and they're in there in their full. Well, most of them, some of them fade, but I mean, there's a beautiful long sequence in Ridgetop of me riding my. Triumph motorcycle across the top of Mount Tamalpais with all these gorgeous views and that music. Um, actually, the ranger station <laughs> on the top of Mount Tamalpais, which is in Marin, asked me, can we can we play this at the station? I said, that's fine with me, man. Go play it. You know, you, you, you're living it. You're, you're, you're right on top of the the biggest ridge we got now yeah. you've, you've had a great career tell me because we, we have to wrap up soon tell me a good story when you recollect on your career tell me a good story that you sit there and go oh my god this is something I can't believe happened to me be something you might put in your book whatever yes i've been putting in you know, all kinds of things in the book and i'm drawing a blank here let me push my mind back into the well we, 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 here's something else tell me a high point of your career when you look back what's been a high point of your career that you feel very proud of you know the csny tour we came off song for julie we made a second album for Warner Brothers, Lightshine. And then all of a sudden I had an offer to play the whole summer tour with CSNY and open every show. And I said, where did this come from? And my uh, road manager, Patty Mayfield said, I heard from Bill Graham that David Crosby took your Song for Julie record on a crossing from De from Hawaii to Tahiti on a sailboat and fell in love with the music and he put you forward as uh, an idea 
for the opening of their summer tour. Now I never did ask, I never asked Crosby if that was true. And I never asked Bill Graham if that was true. I was, I, you know, he may have been involved in it. He was, he was really excited to see me having another career on top of the Young Buds. Young Buds was, he, he, he was our promoter many times, but he, there was not enough groove in the Young Buds for him. Santana was much more uh, up his alley. So he was glad to see me with a kind of a funkier sound and having another career. But, you know, he wouldn't have, he might have put in a good word for me, but he wouldn't have controlled that. You know, you got those four guys. So that was, that tour was amazing. To sing in front of that many people, night after night. We drove the whole tour, everybody drove the whole tour. I mean, or the equipment and me, we drove. And I think Neil drove in his motorhome. Um, the rest of the guys were it turns out we're having kind of a cocaine fantasy tour and staying in five-star hotels and with four televisions on watching them. And um, the Nixon, the whole thing going down with Nixon, um, the Watergate hearings. And uh, yeah, by the time we got to New Jersey, on the night Nixon resigned, we were playing somewhere in Jersey um, some big stadium and I was backstage and I heard this tremendous roar and it was the announcement being made and I didn't hear the announcement um, I just heard the roar I said I kind of rushed out of the dressing room and said what happened Nixon resigned yeah and the crowd went crazy, and uh, it, felt, it felt so validating for those of us who knew in our hearts what a crook he was, and that, yes, we were actually going to get rid of him. That was awesome. I know I know you have another interview coming up. I want to thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. Um, people, you got to go to his website, jessecollinyoung.com. Go buy the song for Julia, song for Julie album. Uh, you can get merchandise from the album. Go to his website, get the remastered. Go listen to it. Buy it. Don't borrow it. Buy it. And uh, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 975 episodes there. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.